CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Get caught up on this week's top stories from The Hash Crew. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Monday's top story. We're going to talk about some stuff that stood out to us from the flow of the crypto news cycle. And we're going to start off with Jen. What do you got? Oh, right. Well, Binance and MasterCard have partnered to bring a prepaid crypto card to Brazil. The card is going to allow users to make payments using 13 different cryptos, including Bitcoin, Ether, and Binance USD. There are some fees associated with using the card. It's going to charge 0.9% per transaction and offer up to 8% back in crypto rewards. Not the first time we've seen an exchange partner up with a big credit card company. This time it's Binance and MasterCard. In Brazil, Will, I'm going to kick this one off to you. We spoke about South America recently, the government's getting together, trying to solve some of their fiscal issues. And now we have some crypto exchanges, you know, trying to address the same problems in maybe a different way. That's right, Jen. Happy Monday morning. I think this is an interesting story because it talks about the privatization of money, right? Two companies, one a Web2, really a legacy product in MasterCard, and one a Web3, Binance, coming together, trying to make something innovative for everyday people who just want to be able to move their money around for cheap, right? It's really the goal of all crypto, moving my money around securely and cheaply. One interesting story about Binance is a lot of people in different countries use Binance just as their checking account. You know, they open up an exchange portfolio and an account on there. It's really easy if you're just not in the United States, you just have to have an email address basically. And then you can add stable coins, you can have Bitcoin, Ethereum onto it, and then just swap around with your friends. You can pay for stuff going to the store. Oftentimes, people just trade between their Binance accounts and keep tabs with that. And that's how they purchase things around town. Uh, it doesn't happen a lot in Western countries. And of course, Binance is not allowed in the United States, or at least Binance itself. Binance US does uh, actively work within the United States. But Binance, as it does work in other countries, doesn't really exist in Western countries. So we don't really think of it this way. So it's just one interesting angle on it. As for MasterCard and Binance, this makes sense, right? And it does speak a little bit to how Binance is being perceived by some of the legacy financial institutions out there. The fact that MasterCard would be willing to work with Binance, to me, speaks volumes about how MasterCard and other financial products are thinking about Binance. Binance is big. It's probably here to stay, even with all the legal kerfuffle we see every single week on crypto Twitter. Wendy, up to you. I love that you use old man lingo, Will. It's my absolute favorite. (laughs) But good morning. Happy Monday, everyone. So I think that this is a really important story. The fact that we, like, 
in the United States, we generally are, we're frowning upon centralized exchanges right now because of the crypto contagion, which is very much fair. But I think it's important to note in other parts of the world, especially places like Brazil or El Salvador, people are actually using centralized cryptocurrency exchanges to do their basic banking because in some parts of the world, some of these countries, they don't have access to get to a bank or they don't have as many financial services as we do in the United States. So I think it's important to look at the entire picture before judging and talk about the pros and the cons. I think that this is amazing. I think it's good. I think it's positive. And it also kind of goes to show you how we perceive these centralized exchanges and cryptocurrency in the West as opposed to other places in the world. And again, you guys, the intended purpose of Bitcoin was to make money accessible to everybody everywhere and so for people to actually be able to own it. I think somebody that grew up with grandparents that were immigrants, I feel like we tend to forget about the struggles that our ancestors went through, how they got here, why they got here, and the importance of being able to bring your money with you and have access to it at any given time. Zach? points. I think just also like the macroeconomic situation, specifically with those rumors around Brazil and Argentina potentially pursuing a shared currency makes this timing really interesting, right? I think Argentina and Brazil are among uh, probably the countries in the Western hemisphere where crypto makes the most sense, right? The specter of hyperinflation always looms large over Argentina specifically, and Brazil has had its issues as well. So for Binance to see this opportunity to say, hey, we're going to come in with this card, we might be a better payment system for you going forward as Brazil and Argentina look to potentially explore what their systems look like. I think that's a really interesting and opportune moment for them to step in and say, hey, this can be as easy as a checking account. Of course, the risk here, especially in the US context, is that these don't have government protections behind them, right? There's no FDIC protection should Binance go belly up, right? You don't get that 250000 back or whatever you know, have to go through that long and laborious process, right? So there is that risk there when people take on crypto exchanges as though they are banks, because they don't have the regulatory protections that banks do, especially in the US. I don't know what the situation is in Brazil, so I can't speak to that specific context. But I think the timing is really smart opportune to say, hey, here's a quick, easy way for you to pay stuff with currencies that are outside the remit of your central bank. And I think ultimately, should this grow and be really big, it does kind of add to those fears that central bankers reserve for private cryptocurrencies such as this. Private in the sense that they're administered by private companies, not private in the sense that they're baked in with privacy protections like Zcash, Monero, etc. So anyway, interesting story all around. I'm glad it was flagged. I saw Wendy up there though. Maybe wanted to get a point before we pass it off. Yeah, really quick before we talk about this next exciting story regarding NFTs, I think it's also important to note the risk reward that people are taking when using some of these centralized exchanges in areas where their economic policies aren't as good as ours in the West. And I do this, I say this very lightly. So people are, they are definitely taking a risk using a centralized exchange, but at the end of the day, that might be the best option for them. And it might be a better option than their banking system. Also too, to close out with FDIC, the last letter is I for insurance. We all know how insurance companies work in the US. God forbid you get in a car accident, have fun getting that full claim back. And if there is a bank run that is done in the US to the banking system, your $250,000 claims are not going to get filled. I highly, highly doubt it. Wednesday's top story. We have a bit of an FTX roundup. Let's do it. All right. First little update we have SBF. He's been talking to people. There's been documents that have been revealed where he's emailing old friends and being like, hey, let's be helpful to each other. Now, this is alleged witness tampering, according to the court. And they're saying, dude, you really shouldn't be doing that. You can't be, you can't be emailing these folks. You can't even be using Signal and other disappearing chat functionality, but how would they know? Anyway, also revealed 
FTX has $1.4 billion cash on hand as of the end of 2022, according to new filings. That's up about 19% from the $1.2 billion that was reported earlier. So there's still a bunch of cash around and nowhere to spend it. Hopefully, it will be diverted toward making users whole. So yeah, lots of SBF stuff. We had another ruling from a judge saying that the names of those people who signed his $250 million bond could be revealed. So a lot of SBF stuff, a lot of FTX stuff. And we figured we'd just start the show with that. So I'm going to toss it straight to Jen for her initial thought on the latest from FTX and its bankruptcy saga. What do you got? So I think it's interesting that he's banned from Signal, but he's still allowed to blog and be on <laughs> Twitter. He can still contact people. I don't know. I don't want to hear from him anymore. And so if the courts are listening or the opposing lawyers are listening, please file something to make Sam stop talking. When I read these stories about what's going on with Sam Bankman-Fried, I see a person unraveling. And I've said this on the show before, you know, he was at the height of his career. He really was this like loved character in the media. He was rubbing shoulders with celebrities and politicians. He really was on top of the world. And to have such a disgraceful fall, I think is really affecting him. And we're seeing it play out in real time online. For him to be reaching out to former colleagues is just baffling to me. And I have to point out again, like I do every time we talk about what's going on with him and FTX, he is currently living at home with his parents, both of whom are lawyers, and still conducting himself as if he has no legal advice, but he has some of the best legal advice in the world under the same roof that he's in. So this is just baffling to me. I think he's unraveling. And that is my take on the story. Wendy, what do you got? So I was actually talking to a good friend in the industry last night about this whole debacle. And because I was so upset, I was like, why is the court giving him access to the internet, considering that's where he committed most of his crimes, right? And the answer was simple. It dawned on me. I forgot that I am from the streets. They are simply giving him freedom <laughs> so he can continue to incriminate himself and get himself in more trouble. Every single time he sends a transaction, he is laundering money. He is doing something illicit. Allegedly, they are tracking him and they are monitoring and documenting all of this stuff. So you know what? It makes complete sense that he has access to the internet and these capabilities so he can continue to incriminate himself and so they can continue to gather more evidence. That is my thought. Will, I saw you nodding your head though. That's a pretty good take. I hadn't thought about that one, but I think you're spot on there. I actually want to go back to what Jen said and just discuss about like, why is he talking to all these people in FTX? And to me, this is kind of like a bad breakup, right? Like he was the king of crypto. He was in charge of Alameda Research. He was in charge of FTX. And then his empire crumbled. And now he's reaching out to all his ex-girlfriend's friends, trying to like talk to them, trying to persuade them that it's okay. Like I'm fine. Like this was not my fault. So that's how I kind of see everything here. It's just a mess. It's going to continue to be a mess. And I'm sure there's going to be more stuff like this. I'm just really waiting for the next Substack post. I don't know about you guys. I mean, we've seen a lot of <laughs> talks about that online. What? I'm waiting for the next issue of his Substack or maybe even a, a podcast <laughs> appearance. Last question, Wendy, I actually want to throw it back to you. Can they like legally take away his internet like as a condition of his bail? Like He's not going to be doing anything till October. That's quite a ways away. And he's locked in his house ordering Uber Eats to his house feel like he's got to have some internet. I feel like if they wanted to include that stipulation in the bail, they 100% could because they've done similar things to other people in the past for crimes. Like, you know, let's say, for example, you get arrested for drinking 
they're going to say you're not allowed to drink while you're out on bail. So I don't understand why they couldn't apply that same practice to him. I just think that they're allowing him to do it so that he can get caught and continue to incriminate himself. Yeah, Wendy, I was going to say the same thing. I think they can do, they can put any restriction on him that they want as part of the bail. And it is so interesting that these crimes were committed online and he still has access to the internet. I tried to pull up some of those bail requirements here, but I can't find, I think there are some financial restrictions on him. I know he had to give up his passport and he has to stay under his parents' roof. I don't remember what the financial restrictions are, but there are some. Zach, we'll give it back to you for last words. I mean, it's kind of endearing, right? It's like, I would really love to reconnect and see if there's a way for us to have a constructive relationship, use each other as resources <laughs> when possible, or at least vet things with each other. This was written to the, to the FTX US uh, general counsel. I mean, I think it's kind of sweet, you know? I like it. It's a nice, I think it's a nice thing. You can't stop the man from <laughs> tweeting through it, all right? Like, let, let him out. be. He's already on house arrest. He's already sad. Just let him email people. Come on now. Anyway, <laughs> that's my counter take. That's my hot take to your hot take. So take that. But anyway, we should change gears. Thursday's top story. Let's get going. On Groundhog Day, we have someone doubling down on their anti-crypto stance. And Adam is going to start us off with that. What do you got, Adam? Thanks, Zach. First up, a new opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal calling for a ban on cryptocurrencies is generating a lot of chatter this morning. It's authored by Charlie Munger, the ultra-wealthy octogenarian vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and a noted Bitcoin skeptic. In the piece, which is actually surprisingly short, Munger describes cryptocurrencies as, quote, gambling contracts with a nearly 100% edge for the house, end quote. He then calls for a broad federal ban, saying in part, quote, the government of China banned cryptocurrencies because it widely concluded that they would provide more harm than benefit, end quote, before going on to cite a ban on the trading of new equities in 1700s England, which I found an interesting comparison. It's not a particularly nuanced article, and notably towards the end, it suggests that after instituting a federal ban, the U.S. should, quote, thank the Chinese communist leader for his splendid example of common sense, end quote. <laughs> There's a decent amount to be said here, even before we get into the rather polarized comments on the article. Jen, you want to start us off today? Sure. I love that you brought up all those quotes. It really wasn't a long article. I think when you go to the Wall Street Journal, it says it takes two minutes to listen to it. So it was very short. It had very little examples. And I have to say it was very one-sided. That said, Charlie Munger, a very smart man, made billions in his life, but he doesn't like Bitcoin. And we know that, right? I think it's really interesting and funny that he brings up China as the example that we should all follow in, in this hatred towards Bitcoin and crypto and fails to mention that China is actually leveraging the technology that powers all of this for their own benefit in their CBDC and NFT project. I know I saw Zach's hand go up, but before we get to you, Zach, Adam, you brought up this uh, gambling contract piece from the story, and I have to read what came right before that. He said, such a wretched excess has gone on because there is a gap in regulation. A cryptocurrency is not a currency not a commodity and not a security. He then goes on to say, it is just a gambling contract. This man hates crypto and I think that's okay. This is really funny that it was published as an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, given that it was so one-sided is my take on it though, Zach. Happy Groundhog Day, y'all. Yeah, we definitely got to hear this again from Charlie <laughs> Munger and the Buffett crew. This is not new or news really, it just is. And I think uh, that's worth stating up, up at the top. I guess the most generous reading of this, and I think there is one interesting little nugget in this very short op-ed that you could uh, read charitably as, 
distaste for the way a lot of these VC coins have launched, right? Where like a VC gets uh, an early share of these tokens at a favorable rate before they go to the mass market and the mass market gets hosed, right? That's something you hear often from crypto community participants, right? Oh, this is the latest VC coin where the distribution is so rigged against us. Why even bother? So if we wanted to grant him that level of nuance, I would say that that is the one thing in this article that did stand out as somewhat reasonable in terms of some of these schemes. So that just stood out to me as potentially something that was fresh. But yeah, closing on a note with an ode to the communist government of China was certainly an odd one from a titan of American capitalism. But cringe. Hey, whatever. It is what it is. Will, I'm tossing it to you. Whatever. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, he's done that before, right? He's talked about how China has banned, uh, has banned Bitcoin and banned other cryptocurrencies, and they're favorable towards that. Really odd take from someone who's been the beneficiary of American capitalism to go out and just want to ban something compared to communist China. If we're going to take the opposite side of things, I think you're on the, the right thread there, Zach. Like there have been a lot of coins that have been pumped and dumped, and it's distasteful you know, to someone like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger who have really built their empire based on buying securities from uh, efficient corporations that have been longstanding and have been fair probably doesn't look great to be purchasing these VC coins that go up and then disappear immediately after a bull market ends. So I have to give that to him a little bit of an edge. On the Bitcoin side of things, I just think this is the same criticism we see all over again. And Zach, as you pointed out this morning, it's a pretty tired argument, right? Like no one's super interested in this, which is why I'm curious that the Wall Street Journal published it again. I guess if Charlie Munger comes to you with a with an op-ed, you probably have to publish it. But that is where we're at with the discourse. Jen, back to you. Yeah, I just wanted to add to what you're saying. I know we say it's tired and no one's super interested, but I think that, you know, given what's going on with FTX, the Wall Street Journal looked at this as, you know, something that their audience might be interested in seeing once again. Adam? Yeah, I mean, I have a couple of additional thoughts on this. The first thing is, is that he correctly identifies, I think, interestingly, that it's not a security, it's not a commodity, it's not typically things that we really have good regulation for. Interestingly, though, his answer to that is that it simply shouldn't be allowed in any form rather than creating rules. This strikes me as kind of similar to, you know, like the invention of like automobiles. Like ultimately, you know, before automobiles existed, there was no such thing as speed limits. Instituting speed limits meant that there was actually rules for the road that could then allow them to be used in a way that was more safe than if it lacked rules entirely. His argument is essentially there should never have been speed limits because since cars are dangerous, why would you ever want to regulate something like that? despite the fact that there are significant advantages to it. Now, another thing that comes to mind is, of course, the Douglas Adams quote about technology, which is one of my favorites, which is essentially that anything that's in the world when you're born is normal and ordinary and just a norm natural part of the way the world works. Anything that's invented between when you're 15 and 35 is new and exciting and revolutionary, and you can probably get a career in it. And anything invented after you're 35 is against the natural order of things. Munger is one of the older, richer people out in the world today. He very much benefited from kind of the earlier stages of the now very devolving and sort of falling apart systems that we now have to suffer with today. So of course, it's unsurprising that he takes this kind of viewpoint about it because he's already got his. But the reality of it is, is that just as China and just as India are taking a very harsh view towards cryptocurrencies because they threaten the order that benefits their power so significantly and are instead trying to co-opt it, uh, you know, and turn it into sort of like a safe version that has the branding of the thing, but still allows them to retain their power moving into the next system. He very much has incentives to do the same. He's vested in the current environment. And you kind of see that over and over and over again from this type of person. So it's unsurprising, but it remains a little bit disappointing to see these nominally smart people continue to make such embarrassing arguments 
uh, and to be clear, agreed with everybody else that uh, a lot of stuff in crypto <laughs> certainly is not as it's advertised. So it'd be great if we got some real rules. You've been listening to The Hash Headlines on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.